live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back. Last week's episode resonated deeply with people, and this week we're back for part two, as promised, to talk a bit more about the historical context of the ongoing conflict. So I guess the first question is, is there a clear narrative as to what's going on? Well, maybe alternatively, we can ask whose land is it, for which we really need to look at three distinct periods in the conflict, pre-47, 47 to 87 and 87 to the present day and there are um, three different names for it almost because pre-47 it isn't the Israeli-Arab conflict Israel hadn't come into existence and nor had almost all the Arab countries around it Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon these are all 20th century creations and then post-47 it would be called the Israeli-Arab conflict And post-87, it's not the countries, but a conflict within the country. So it's now more rightfully called the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So we see from just this how changing this history is, how recent this history is, and how it is necessary to have an overall understanding to answer many of the bigger questions because the roots are 100 years old and therefore this podcast is going to be longer than any of the others that we have made to date. And of course, together with the uh, context, the historical context, there's current issues such as proportionality and the right to withhold water, etc. All of which we will cover Uh, This is not going to be a question and answer, but a narrative, because the the purpose is for people to understand, to know the facts, and be able to have a perspective on the entirety of it. Now, I want to start in the mid-1800s, but with one introductory sentence, and that is that the Ottoman Empire takes over the land of Israel, in fact, most of the Middle East in the 1500s, and it will remain under their rule for 400 years. And the Jews will be a very small nucleus in Yerushalayim, Tzvas, various other towns. It's only in the 19th century that that changes. There's firstly a religious aliyah at the beginning of the century, and then much larger in the late 19th century. And why did that happen specifically then? Two main reasons. Moses Hess wrote a book called Roman Jerusalem in the 60s, 1860s, which is the first political Zionist book to discuss restoration in Palestine through basically through national land acquisition and by building up the country. And then obviously you get others, Pinsker, Herzl, Nordau, Jabotinsky, and they all realize that even after the French Revolution and emancipation in Europe, anti-Semitism will not be eradicated. And in fact, most of them also realize that Jews can't escape anti-Semitism through assimilation. These are the, the theories of what you might call political Zionism. But then in the last two decades of the 19th century, you have the actual Aliyah from Eastern Europe, which is kicked off, especially from Russia, by the major pogroms of 1881. 
The people coming are of a more secular nature, and they are interested in building up the land in Moshavim, which will later become Kibbutzim. And this first Aliyah will bring 25,000 Jews, approximately. And how did the Ottomans and the Arabs react to that? Okay, so by this time, the Ottoman Empire is almost only nominally in control of the Middle East or of Palestine. It's referred to often in history as the sick old man of Europe because it's on its last legs. And various other empires of Europe have a strong presence in the country, the Germans, the French, the Russians, the Austro-Hungarians. That's from a macro perspective. The landlords on the ground were often Arabs. And indeed, for the next half century, the Arabs would claim that the Jews were forcing them out of the land because there wasn't enough room for both peoples to be settled. But the claim is ridiculous, firstly, because the country was very sparsely populated, you know, maybe a couple of hundred thousand in the entire country, where there are nine million today. But mainly because for many centuries, Palestine was uh, poorly cultivated, neglected. It was desert land. It was uh, malarial marshes. Famously, Mark Twain, who visited Palestine in 1867, described it as a desolate country. There was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive and cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So those were the facts on the ground. And the first Aliyah is followed by a second Aliyah between 1900 and 1914. There are now another 40,000 new Jewish immigrants to Palestine. This intensifies the Arab opposition to Jewish settlements. And Jews have to have guards at each moshav, in fact, in every new district. And I don't know if the listeners are aware of this, but for instance, when Meir Sharim is built, which is, by the way, only the right-hand side of the street as you go from Kikr Shabbos, all the houses are attached. So there's no place for attack. And they had guards. So it is becoming uneasy. But there's no political representation that any side has, and it's all sporadic, uncentralized, and the land is, is primitive. But then, 1914, World War I changes everything for all time. Two things happen. The Ottoman Empire falls, and the British make almost contradictory promises to Arabs and Jews and create a, uh, a dire scenario. Because the British and the French, who had hoped to take over most of the Middle East during the war, decided that this whole area would be divided into British and French areas of control, mandates. And they make a deal with the indigenous people living in those countries, Syria, Jordan, although these places don't exist as such, and offer them self-rule in exchange for them harassing the Turks, the Ottomans, and for for participating in uh, in guerrilla warfare. And this becomes known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement. But within all of that, Palestine itself was to become an international entity, not like the other Arab lands. There's no promise of independence to Palestine, mainly because no Arab clans or popu Arab populations in Palestine were prepared to volunteer for the Allied cause. So, ergo, no reward. And in fact, Sir Henry MacMahon, in writing to the future King Hussein during the First World War about future Arab independence, conspicuously fails to mention Palestine deliberately. 
He says, I feel it my duty to state that it was not intended by me to include Palestine in the area in which Arab independence was promised, and my pledge was well understood by King Hussein. I mean, nevertheless, the Arabs still held, some of them, that um, there was a promise for independence because facts have never bothered them too much, and particularly interpretation of facts. So that's what's happening in the Middle East from an Arab perspective. But then there's Chaim Weizmann. Herzl died and Weizmann became the head of the Zionist movement, but he's also a research chemist. And in the middle of World War I, he earns the uh, gratitude of the British government because he discovers a method of synthesizing acetone, which is critical to the munitions industry because it made sure that shells exploded on impact. That's pretty important in a war and invaluable. And the British, the government felt they owed him. And Weizmann pushed the British to support the creation of an independent Jewish state in Palestine. And famously, on November 2nd, 1917, Lord Balfour writes to Lord Rothschild that the Jewish proposals submitted to the cabinet were acceptable. Famously, His Majesty's government views with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. That seems to make Palestine Jewish. More than that, in 1919, Emir Faisal, son of the king, who led the Arab delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, at that conference, he writes to Felix Frankfurter, who's the head of the American Zionists, in a letter that we still have. And this is an Arab writing, an Arab representative writing to the Jews, mindful of the ancient bonds existing between the Arabs and the Jewish people. We look for the closest possible collaboration to encourage immigration of Jews into Palestine. We look forward to wishing them a hearty welcome home. Imagine. In other words, for some of the leading Arabs, they expected certain Middle Eastern countries will be governed by Arab leaders, but Palestine by the Jews, which would, of course, have solved the issue for all time. And in 1920, when the Allied powers convene in San Remo in Italy, France and Great Britain implement the Sykes-Picot Agreement, gave France the mandate for Syria, and Britain has the mandate for Iraq and Palestine, and they recognise the Balfour Declaration. Which means the Arabs in Palestine were never offered anything in writing that would give them independence or rule, anything. Only the Jews, if anybody. So if we're talking early 20th century claims to the land, the Palestinians have none. But... But the British didn't want to upset the nationalist Arabs in Palestine, meaning once the surrounding Arab countries are getting self-determination, so suddenly the Arabs in Palestine wake up too. And so the British clarified the Balfour Declaration. You need to hear this properly. The declaration didn't say that His Majesty's government views with favour the establishment of Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people, which would imply all of Palestine. It said the establishment in Palestine, not of Palestine. And of course, since it's within Palestine, that means that Palestine will continue to be ruled by the British, especially since the Jews were not a majority, which means in typical British colonial fashion of really messing over the natives of any country that they occupied, you know, think India or America, Britain helped no one. The problem is it's not just that things are in limbo. It's that the country will now become shaped by those who are the most ruthless, as we will see. And to make things worse, the first High Commissioner of the British Mandate in Palestine is Sir Herbert Samuel, a Jew. 
which sounds great. It's a disaster. He was there for five years and he damaged the Jewish cause even further. It's possible that he might never have understood the land that he was governing. You know, he was brought up in privileged circles and he probably never met people on the ground in countries which were war-torn. But either way, he leant over backwards to show that he wasn't favouring the Jews. Um, so that many of the most ardent anti-Zionist British officials were uh, appointed to important government positions in Palestine by him. And it was Herbert Samuel who placed restrictions on Jewish immigration into the country in response to Arab complaints and concerns about the you know, absorptive capacity of the country. These experts said that there's no cultivable land left in Palestine. And anyway, the country's overpopulated. And as I mentioned, this is a time by now there are, let's say, a half a million people living there, but there are nine million people there today. And then he did the unthinkable. Herbert Samuel allowed Hajj Amin al-Husseini into power. Hajj Amin was a radical Arab nationalist who hated the British and hated the Jews even more. He would eventually go on to support the Nazis. He would spend part of the war as Hitler's personal guest in Berlin. There are photos, newspaper headlines about this. And he, there, I have correspondence in which he uh, is shown to be clearly pushing for deportation of Jews during World War II. This is the guy who will now represent the Palestinians in Palestine. Now, to understand the, the, just where this comes from, he'd been involved in the 1920 riots and sentenced by a British court to 15 years of hard labour, so he escaped to Syria. Herbert Samuel, in his um, infinite wisdom, as one of his very first acts, was to order complete amnesty to all of those involved in the riots uh, who'd been sentenced to prison. And then there is the death of the Mufti in Jerusalem in 1921. So a, a ballot is held to elect a new candidate and Muslim religious leaders voted out of four candidates who was the best qualified. And Hajamin came in last out of the four. And nevertheless, Herbert Samuel succumbed basically to pressure from within his own administration. And he appoints this guy, the Mufti of Jerusalem, for life. Effectively destroying peace efforts till he died. And never mind till he died. Basically, from that moment on, peace in Israel was dead because radicals don't speak peace. And the Middle East became a radicalized space with uh, many Arab leaders now outdoing each other and subsequently outdoing each other in anti-Jewish and, and anti-Israel rhetoric. And after he is elected president of the council, he takes control of all, you know, Muslim religious funds in Palestine, and he gains control over the mosques, the courts, and basically no Arab could reach an influential position in Palestine without being loyal to him. And that meant being loyal to extremism. And regarding the land and independence, what did he do there? Mainly initiate riots as a policy. It's not the Intifada that gave birth to this ideology of killing civilians to get attention. We all know of the infamous riots in Hebron in 1929. That's him. But what we don't know that there were riots in 26, in 33, in 35, all him. Because local Arab groups now realize that rioting is a way to get your demands heard and often to get your demands met. And therefore, for the next 15 years, there's no peace, but there's no hope of peace. And the only reason it stops in 1937 is because by then, even the British had enough and they tried to arrest him. So he skips over to Syria and the Jews are paying the price. 
not only the Jews in Palestine, but the Jews in Europe. Because by 1937, Europe's Jews are being governed by two Jew-hating dictators, Stalin and Hitler, and they can't get into Palestine. But finally, Britain, 19 years after the Balfour Declaration, offers the Jews a lifeline, the Peel Commission, to look into partition, giving Arabs and Jews a homeland. And the map produced would have given the Arabs 70% of the country and the Jews only 30%. It wasn't a great deal. The Jews were desperate and they said yes. And the Arabs unilaterally rejected it, unanimously. They could have had a state in Palestine nearly 100 years ago. They all refused. It's important to know that. But of course, what we've shown is that they refused land in a country that they had no real claim to anyway. So partition is buried by the Arabs. And now the British are pressurised by the Palestinian Arabs who complain about excessive immigration and the British will close the doors. They issue a white paper in early 1939, which puts basically an end to Jewish immigration into Palestine, leaving hundreds of thousands of Jews in Europe to be murdered during the Holocaust because officially there's no space in Palestine no space, right? That's what the Arabs insisted and it became policy. And as the British Prime Minister Chamberlain said, if we are to offend one side, let us offend the Jews and not the Arabs. And now we come to World War II and the Jews 20 years after Balfour have nothing. They have no land, no immigration, no prospects, whereas all the surrounding Arab countries already have self-governance and in Iraq already has full independence. And with all this, what is important also to point out is that Hadjamin had been the Palestinian spokesman. He wrote to the colonial secretary as early as, I think, 1921, who was Winston Churchill. He demanded that restrictions be placed on Jewish immigration, and he asked that Palestine be reunited with Syria and Transjordan. Which means, it's very important to understand this, that the Mufti's letter to Churchill is absent any demand for independence for Palestine. Even the most outspoken and radical Arab in the land never asked for Palestine to be its own country. They wanted to get rid of the Jews, but they wanted it to be part of Syria. And the UN negotiator for the Middle East after World War II wrote, the Palestinian Arabs have never developed any Palestinian nationalism. The demand for a separate Arab state in Palestine is relatively weak. It would seem as though most of the Palestinian Arabs would be quite content to be incorporated into Transjordan. Of course, no one mentions that nowadays when they mention the Palestinian people of pre-47. Which Palestinian people? So nothing changes during the war. No. And in fact, in 45, 46, the Jews are determined to get into Palestine and, and to force the Balfour Declaration back on the table. And eventually what happens is that Britain hands the whole mandate to the United Nations and says, OK, you deal with it. And the UN does. And they offer partition again. And again, the Jews are getting the smaller part. And again, they say yes. And once again, predictably, every Arab state and every nationalist Arab rejects it. This two-state solution that everyone talks about. But the vote happens in the UN anyway, in November 47. And May 14th is set as the day Israel will come into existence by virtue of the UN. It's a land created by the United Nations, which is why they have such a say over the place. But on May 15th, the next day, 
Six Arab countries unilaterally invade Israel with the stated aim of killing this nation at birth, which on paper should have happened. But Israel won. And Israel and Arab states eventually agree to an armistice. Israel has now gained 50% more territory than was originally given to it by the UN partition plan. And a ceasefire is created in 49. It can't be called a peace deal because none of the Arab countries recognize that there is such a country called Israel, explicitly so. So this obviously created a refugee issue. Yes, yes, it did. But there are a few big buts to this refugee issue, which is now, you know, the right of return, which is always brought up by the Palestinians. A few things have to be understood. Firstly, had the Arabs accepted the partition resolution, not a single Palestinian would have become a refugee. Independent Arab state would exist next to Israel. So the responsibility for creating the problem is an Arab one. And the Arab exodus can be traced to the weeks following the announcement of the UN uh, resolution in 47. You know, the first people who leave are 30,000 wealthy Arabs because they said there's a war coming, so they go to wherever they can get a good life in a different country. But by the end of January 48, the exodus is so alarming that the Palestine Arab Hire Committee asked neighbouring Arab countries to refuse visas to these refugees and seal the borders. This is January 48. This is five months before the 14th of May. And in fact, the commander of Jordan's Arab legions said villagers were frequently abandoned even before they were threatened by the progress of war. So why? Why did they flee? Now, modern textbooks will tell you it was to avoid massacres by the Jews. History tells us otherwise. The Syrian prime minister in 1948-49 said, Since 1948, we have been demanding the return of the refugees to their homes, but we ourselves are the ones who encourage them to leave. British newspaper The Economist reported, Of the 62,000 Arabs who formerly lived in Haifa, not more than 5,000 remain. Various factors influence their decision to seek safety in flight. There is but a little doubt, though, that the most potent of the factors were the announcements made over the air by the higher Arab executive urging the Arabs to quit. It was clearly intimated that those Arabs who remain in Haifa and accept Jewish protection would be regarded as renegades. The Times the mass evacuation, prompted partly by fear, partly by order of Arab leaders, left the Arad quarter of Haifa a ghost city by withdrawing Arab workers. Their leaders hoped to paralyse Haifa. And finally, the secretary of the Arab League in London wrote in his book, The Arabs, the Palestinian exodus was due partly to the belief of the Arabs, encouraged by the boasting of an unrealistic Arabic press and the irresponsible utterances of Arab leaders that it would only be a matter of weeks before the Jews were defeated by the armies of the Arab states and the Palestinian Arabs will all be able to re-enter and retake possession of their country. So who made them leave? Well, you know, I leave the conclusion to you, but it's got to be based on facts. And of course, the Syrians or Egyptians wouldn't allow refugees into their country as they don't today, as we see in Gaza at this moment. And this is a very important point. There is also a very significant addition to the refugee crisis, the Jews. The Jews who were forced to flee from Arab lands. After the UN vote in 1947, 
There are riots, attacking, looting all over the Middle East in these Arab countries. Aleppo, 75 Jews murdered within a week of the vote. A hundred in Yemen, dozens in Egypt, Libya, Morocco, Algeria. So they fled. And the number of Jews fleeing Arab countries to Israel following Israel's independence was nearly double the number of Arabs leaving Palestine. And Jews, most of them, left with the shirts on their backs. And in fact, Syria passed a law forbidding Jews from selling their property. And not a lot is heard about them. One of the reasons is because they didn't main refugees for long. These 820,000 Jewish refugees between 48 and 72, 585,000 are resettled at great expense in Israel. And there is no offer of compensation from any Arab government who confiscated their possessions. And Israel has maintained, therefore, that any agreement to compensate Palestinian refugees must include Arab reparations for Jewish refugees. But no Arab country is prepared to pay anything to those who were forced to abandon their property. You know, I recall that Sir Martin Gilbert was always very keen that this betrayal be publicized so we can make a, you know, a proper and accurate assessment of the times. So that's addressing the refugee problem. And then the Arab League established a permanent boycott, not only to ban trade with Israel. The secondary boycott was on companies that do business with Israel in the West. And the boycott was against international law, but many countries and companies followed it for years, for decades. And therefore, for instance, uh, you know, many products that were to be found anywhere in the first world, such as uh, Pepsi or McDonald's or most Japanese cars, could not be found in Israel until the late 80s. You know, when Coke made the uh, brave decision in 1966 to trade with Israel, it was banned in all Arab countries. You know, the only place you could get Pepsi is if you bought it from, from Arabs, you know, outside Cape Rochel, because you couldn't buy it in Israel because of a boycott, which is against the law. No one talks about that. Now, eventually, this leads to, to 1967, to the, the Six-Day War in June. On May 22nd, Egypt closes the Straits of Tehran to all Israeli shipping. And this blockade cuts off Israel's only supply route with Asia and stops the flow of oil from its main supplier. Who was Israel's main supplier of oil? Iran. Right. Um, now, in before the Ayatollah, in 1956, the United States had given Israel assurances that they had right of access to the Straits of Tehran. This was done at the UN and 17 maritime powers agreed to it. But no one protests when Egypt cuts Israel off. And then Nasser mobilizes the Egyptian military along the border with Israel. So, yes, Israel fired the first shot, but they were about to be wiped out, as every Arab radio station made clear on a daily basis at the end of May. And then in six days, Israel tripled the size of their country, but it couldn't last. So it has to be understood, and this is often not mentioned, that Israel reached out to make a peace deal on the basis of territory. I mean, they had plenty of it now, but the Arabs said no again, and they enshrined this no in policy. In Khartoum in 1967, the infamous three no's, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel. 
So now the UN steps in. And they passed the most well-known resolution in the Middle East, possibly the most well-known UN resolution ever, which is always brought up and needs to be understood. Resolution 242. All the Arabs cite it as the basis for a requirement for Israel to withdraw two pre-67 borders. It's inaccurately read because the call asks for, and I quote, the withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict. And it is linked to a second very unambiguous clause calling for the termination of all claims or states of belligerency against Israel. So that has to be there. You want us to withdraw? There has to be an absolute acceptance of our existence and guarantees of peace. But more importantly, within that first line that I read out to you, the resolution does not say that Israel must withdraw from all the territories captured during the Six-Day War. It's not semantics. It's very deliberate. The Soviet delegate wanted the inclusion of those words and said that the exclusion meant that part of these territories will remain in Israeli hands. The Arab states pushed for it. And when it was rejected in the UN, the Arabs continued to read the resolution as if it were included. And they continuously do, as they did, for instance, at the Madrid peace talks in 1991. It's not true. In 1969, for instance, the British Foreign Secretary told the House of Commons that the withdrawal envisaged by the resolution would not be from all the territories. And when he was asked to explain the British position, he said it would have been wrong to demand that Israel return to its position of June 4th because those positions were undesirable and artificial. And the US ambassador explained that the notable omissions, which were not accidental, are the words the and all. So that's very important to know. And anyway, because Israel has now withdrawn from over 90% of the territories when it gave up the Sinai in 78, the Gaza Strip in 2005, and portions of the West Bank during the 90s, it can legitimately argue that it's fulfilled Resolution 242. Equally crucially, the Palestinians are not mentioned anywhere in Resolution 242. They are alluded to in the second clause, which calls for a just settlement of the refugee problem, which, as we've now said, equally applies to Jewish refugees from Arab countries. But it, nowhere does it require Palestinians to be given any political rights or territory. So, you know, once again, an invention of the idea that there's a Palestinian country that has now been mentioned by the world. So it's another stalemate. And the Arabs have made their hardline views well known. And obviously, you can only get negotiate if you've got a partner to go negotiate with. And there wasn't one. Moving on, there'll be another war, the Yom Kippur War in 73, which surprisingly and miraculously, um, the Arabs lose again. And eventually... If we look at the Middle East by 1978, things will now change because the Arab countries have fought and lost four wars. They've lost territory each time and the world is carrying on. Boycotts haven't worked. Uh, holding the world to ransom by inflating oil prices didn't work. And more or less, the Arab countries at this moment in time say we're done. We'll give you money, but you guys do this on your own. And in fact, uh, peace treaties will start with the countries very slowly. Starts with Egypt in, who, because they get back all of the Sinai. And uh, by the way, they get back all of the Sinai except for the Gaza Strip. 
Egypt never took it back in 1978 because Egypt didn't want Gaza. They knew it was a hotbed of terrorism, so they told the Israelis to hold on to it, right? They didn't want it back. Um, but this meant from the 1980s that the Palestinians were left to their own devices and the methods they chose after 1987 wasn't the, the hijackings and shootings in the European cities that they'd carried out in the 1970s, but internal terror. And um, in some ways, the last 35 years have been the most difficult phase for Israel, even if in terms of numbers, obviously the Yom Kippur War, or the 48 War had far greater losses in life. Because, you know, the, the clashes start with, with burning tires, uh, but it escalates. Um, and what Israel faced was on a number of levels. Firstly, the image. You have the photo of a teenager unarmed throwing rocks at, at tanks, at fully armed soldiers in, in, in full body armor. The aggressor becomes Israel especially from 1987 onwards, even though Israel never started the cycle at any stage. And even before the internet age, there are photos in the newspaper, which killed Israel's image, and that's a very real issue. Secondly, with this Palestinian terrorism, when it turns to, for instance, bus bombing, it could be anywhere in the country. Every time you step on the bus, every time you take a seat in a restaurant, and of course, the majority of the victims are civilians because they're a much easier target. They're not going to defend themselves because they don't have weapons on them and you don't need, you know, elaborate plans to carry it out. And it's impossible to protect an entire nation. We have been living off miracles for the last 35 years. If you think about the potential amount of disasters, Hasfa Shalom, that there could have been. So Israel is brought to the negotiation table because they're desperate to preserve innocent lives. And now I, I'm not going to go through every phase of the years until 2005. That even within this lengthy podcast will be um, far too long. There's Madrid in 91, Oslo 1, Oslo 2, 2000, whatever. Initially, Israel re um, insisted that the Palestinian representatives had to be those who had never been terrorists. They didn't have blood on their hands. But in 91, Shamir is forced by the Bush administration to allow PLO there. And that undermines the long-standing view internationally that the PLO needed to be marginalized to allow new Palestinian leaders to emerge. And we are still paying the price for that because now terrorists are legitimate negotiating partners. But Israel tried. And they had to give up very real things, land and security control. Almost 40% of the West Bank, you know, area uh, B and C, eventually all of Gaza. And for what? What did they get in return? Because the main problem, which exists to this day, the single biggest unsolvable problem almost, is that you don't have one group representing the Palestinians. So even if you give concessions to a more moderate group, there are plenty of groups out there who are hardline and you've achieved nothing, nor can you, nor will you. It, you know, when you've got hardliners in Israeli politics, they are part of a politically democratic system. And when they get outvoted in the Knesset, they're outvoted. They lose. That's it. In Palestinian terms, there is no democratic charter that Hamas or any of these other groups signed up to. 
So when you've got the PLO signing a deal with Rabin, why would that change by one iota Hamas's view of wanting to wipe out Israel, as it says in their charter? And therefore, nowadays, the words two-state solution are just words uh, to finish off a Middle East speech if you're an American and OU politician. But in reality, it's impossible unless there becomes only one group that represents the Palestinian side and critically that that one group is dedicated to removing or hunting down any hardliners within its own ranks that create violence. No such thing exists. And it became rapidly clear in the 90s uh, when Arafat was unwilling or unable to prevent Palestinian terrorism. You know, when it came to his political opponents, Sir Arafat was ruthless. He jailed them, he murdered them, but he wasn't prepared to declare war on the Muslim extremists from Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Now, he normally explained this because, you know, there's an alleged fear that this would provoke a Palestinian civil war. But it becomes clear that Arafat considered the group's allies because he could use their extremism to extract even more concessions from, from Israel and from the world. What actually happened initially... So Israel and the PLO recognized each other. They, they shake hands and they announce that the Palestinians would be given self-rule in, in Gaza and Jericho. And the two sides would then negotiate details of autonomy for the rest of the territories. And Israel gave the Palestinians responsibility for, for health, education, for welfare, tourism, whatever, civil functions in the West Bank. And the Palestinians were given money. Lots of it. Initially, delegates from 43 nations pledged $2 billion in aid over five years for the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The US promised $500 million. Even Israel pledged $25 million. But very tellingly, just by the way, the Arab countries were basically silent. The, the, you know, the big hope was that Saudi Arabia would make a major commitment. The Saudis agreed to give $100 million in the first year and no commitment after that. And this... Um, lack of financial support from the Arab world is very consistent with its history of you know publicly declaring loyalty to the Palestinian cause while privately giving minimal amounts of money except to fund terror, which is the same reason why the Arab countries don't rehouse these refugees. Now, this recognition, right, the price of Israeli recognition of the PLO, it does amount to... Arafat seemingly capitulating, at least, you know, in all his rhetoric, in all his ideology, because he's now recognizing Israel. He's giving up terrorism. Um, It's a uh, promise to revoke the PLO's uh, covenant that calls for the destruction of the Jewish state. But Israel is conceding not theoretical things, not things on paper. They are conceding without first testing to see that the PLO's deeds were consistent with their promises. Why did the PLO agree to do so? Wasn't it losing face to some extent? And losing face in the Middle East is a very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So one important reason is the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. The end of the Cold War was the end of a major source of financial and political support for the Palestinian cause. And in the same year, you've got the Gulf War and Arafat supported Iraq and Saddam Hussein and alienated Arab countries because Saudi Arabia and Kuwait were on the American side. They didn't have any money. And also Arafat told his people that, you know, Palestine would be a country within a few years. 
And Israel gambled that the PLO's theoretical assurances would be translated into deed, but even on paper it didn't work because he pledged to change the PLO covenant. He didn't do so for another five years. Now, the hope was, remember, they're being brought to this table because they're facing an impossible situation of internal terrorism. So the hope is that the Israelis and Palestinians would become comfortable with coexistence. But the opposite happens. The Palestinians flouted most of the provisions and violence against Israelis escalated, which is why a right wing government comes into being in 96. And almost every time that violence flares up in the region, Israel can quickly be turned into the aggressor. And that is made much worse when the Internet starts and when social media is around. It's a cycle of violence. Yep. But it's a cynical cycle. It's created by those who know that ultimately Israel can't protect itself. Israel is not initiating violence. And because there isn't a real pursuit of peace by most groups representing the Palestinians, and they know they can always hold out for more. So, for instance, in the year 2000, when... um, Arafat was offered an Israeli withdrawal from 91% of the West Bank. He walked away without even making a sort of a counteroffer. And Clinton blames Arafat, but it's a never-ending game. That's the problem. So meanwhile, Israel's treatment of Palestinians is almost similar to the treatment of blacks in apartheid South Africa. No, that is not true. It's true the Jews are a majority in Israel, but the Arab minority are full citizen. They enjoy equal rights. They can vote. They are represented in the Knesset. They are on the Supreme Court. The Palestinians in the territories, it's different because they're not Israeli citizens. Therefore, Israel has to guard against violence from the West Bank and and the Gaza Strip, but not for Israeli Arabs who are citizens. Right. I want to, for a moment, look at briefly at the United Nations and its role in the Middle East, because it obviously plays a large role from 91 onwards. How honest are they? This is going to come as very little surprise, but it's good to know actual facts. At the General Assembly in the United Nations each year, there are more condemnations against Israel than all of the rest of the world combined. In 2022, Iran, Syria, North Korea, all of them faced one resolution each, and the total for all countries was 13. Israel alone had 15 condemnations in resolution form. Not a single resolution was introduced about human rights in China, in Venezuela, in Saudi Arabia, in Turkey, in Pakistan, or 180 other countries. And as Abba Eban put it, if Algeria introduced a resolution declaring that the earth was flat and that Israel had flattened it, it would pass by a vote of 164 to 13 with 26 abstentions. And of course, the Human Rights Council in Geneva are far worse. Between 2006 and the present day, there have been 104 resolutions against Israel, once again outweighing all the combined resolutions against any other country. China has had zero. Turkey has had zero. Pakistan has had zero. Right. So we get an understanding. And in the General Assembly from 2015 to the present, there have been 140 condemnations against Israel. Once again, China, zero. Cuba, zero. Libya, zero. Um, And then in December 2021, the UN adopted a resolution on Jerusalem. 
which is consistent with the Palestinian effort to erase Jewish history from the city because the resolution refers to the Temple Mount only by its Arabic name without mentioning its Hebrew name, the Harabais, to insinuate that it's significant only to Muslims. 129 countries voted for the resolution. Only 11 opposed it, including obviously Israel and the United States, and 31 abstained. So, and one of the reasons I mentioned the UN When someone quotes the International Court of Justice, that, you know, the ICJ, they found Israel guilty for X, Y and Z for war crimes. It's not an international court which gets scrutinised. It's a chicken coop run by the foxes. It's a meaningless institution when it comes to Israel. Okay, let's move finally to 2005 to 2023. It's still in the area of this terrorism. But now what you have is Hamas. Hamas believe in the virtue of what they do, and that's what makes them evil. Meaning, it's not a war that, you know, it's unfortunate but necessary. It's a glorious episode. That's why they celebrate it, take videos of it, why they target civilians. Hamas doesn't think like you and I. Don't make the mistake of assuming they do, and that's where the BBC has it wrong, by blurring the morality of the issue. Hamas aren't interested in peace, nor are they interested in the Palestinian people. Look at the charters that they have and that Israel have. And we gave them Gaza in 2005, a beautiful irrigated area in the north. They destroyed it. They could have built up housing, medicine, education. But they want Israel's destruction far more than they want their people's welfare. And you can see it very clearly in one way. There have been billions that have been sent to Gaza. Billions. Where have they been spent? Where are these facilities which would have built up their people? And who have Hamas made peace with in the last 20 years? Whereas Israel has got the Abrahamic Accords, they were in negotiations with Saudi Arabia. And if we move, therefore, from 2005 to 2023 to what happened on the 7th of October, these were explicit acts of war and war crimes. And therefore... Israel's response, well, what happened was so bad, so disproportional, disproportional by Hamas, not by Israel, that Israel now hopes to prove that Hamas can finally be shown to be ISIS, which will allow them to root them out and the world won't get involved. And bottom line, Israel has a right to defend itself and a right to kill Hamas. If someone declares war on your country and it is continuously waging that war and doing so from amidst its civilian population, do you say, well, you know, it's amongst the civilians and our people just have to die? Or do you try and defeat your enemy? What has been the case in international warfare? Hamas has sent more than four and a half thousand rockets raining down on Israeli cities with the singular intention of murdering as many Jews as possible indiscriminately. So, yes, we do have sympathy for the Palestinians being governed by Hamas, but they had a choice in 2005, however limited. And yes, do I feel bad that innocents died? Yeah, but I don't feel the wrong decision was made or that it was illegal or that any other nation in the West would have done otherwise. It's a lie to suggest that and it's hypocrisy to frame Israel. And when ISIS was hunted down, civilian was ki- were killed and it was known that they were going to be killed and the whole western world stood behind it with tens of thousands of civilian casualties because it is war Rabbi Hirsch, thank you for 
providing us with such a detailed historical background. We'd like to now move on to the second part of the podcast, which is to introduce an expert in Middle Eastern affairs to answer some specific questions about the conflict. He's based in the United States, and this is a recording of the Zoom call that we had with him. We have great pleasure in introducing Mitchell Bard, who for the past 25 years has been involved in Middle Eastern affairs. He has a PhD in political science from UCLA, is the director of the Jewish Virtual Library website dedicated to Jewish history and current affairs, which I visit at least once a week, and has written a number of books, particularly on the Holocaust in the Middle East, and publishes a weekly email. He's advocated for Israel for many decades, and I'm personally a big fan. 20 years ago, when I was tasked with teaching the Israeli-Arab conflict for a school with an external examination board, I couldn't bring myself to use any of the British textbooks because they were either faulty in terms of information or biased. So I had to create a curriculum, and I used only two sources, yours and Sir Martin Gilbert, two Jews telling it like it is. And one of your most important contributions to the conflict is a comprehensive and easily accessed book called Myths and Facts, all of which can be downloaded and is constantly updated. And we will post more details about it on our website. And given the intensity of the conflict as it is now, and the fact that although you are American, your son made Aliyah recently and was called up to the army last week, I believe, it makes it even more of an honor that you found some time to speak to us. Welcome to History for the Curious. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. And I just wanted to echo in its intro, we're very honored that you took out from your valuable time to be with us. We mentioned last week in part one of this series that the media is full of bias regarding the conflict. And there's certain questions people are being asked, particularly on social media, but from all over the world, and would really appreciate your expertise and clarity on. I'd like to ask these questions specifically using the wording and even the tone that the rest of the world does. But perhaps to start with a much more general question, which just to give us a bit of background. So in the 70s and 80s, it was all about the PLO. That's all we heard. But nowadays, it's Hamas. They are the leading governing body in Gaza. Who are Hamas and where did they suddenly appear from? Well, I think it's important to recognize that this has been a religious conflict from the beginning, dating back to the 1920s with the Mufti of Jerusalem, who provoked riots that killed many Jews over a number of years because of his Islamic interpretations that basically believed there was no room for Jews. And Hamas is just a later manifestation of this. They were a outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, another radical Islamic group based in Egypt. And they had emerged in Gaza, in part because the Israelis hoped to find an alternative to the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, that they wanted to play some of the Palestinians against each other. But Hamas emerged somewhat organically with its opposition to Israel's occupation, in its words, of what it considers Islamic land. And if you look at its charter, they make very clear 
what their objectives are and that they are inspired by their interpretation of Islam, that they believe that all Jews should be killed, that Israel should be destroyed. And they really would like to spread their Islamic views across not just where Israel is, but across the entire world. And that's one of the reasons why they're supported by Iran, which has similar objectives. Well, okay, so thanks for that background. I guess it's time to sort of dive into the big questions. And what's being repeatedly asked all over the world is, we keep seeing the words a proportionate response or disproportionate response. And specifically, people are asking, why isn't it illegal to withhold water and power from 2 million Palestinians just because a terrorist group killed Jews in Israel? Surely there has to be some proportionality. If you can talk about that, please. Well, I'm not an, an authority on international law, but I know that there are provisions that allow for the siege against uh, enemy combatants. And unfortunately, many of those civilians are stuck in the same area where the Hamas terrorists are. The idea of proportionality is, in theory, a good one, but in practice, what does it really mean? Does Israel cut off the heads of Palestinian babies and uh, burn innocent Palestinians because that's what uh, Hamas did? Is that what's proportional when Hamas launches uh, thousands of rockets into Israel civilian neighborhoods? Would the proportional response be that Israel launched indiscriminately rockets into Gaza? It makes uh, no real sense to think of it that way. But unfortunately, the world tends to see this more as a sport than a war, where they want to try to equate things that are not equivalent. The terrorists are like arsonists. They set a fire and the Israeli firefighters are trying to put it out. But the media in particular wants to try to equate firefighters and arsonists, which Otherwise, you wouldn't do. And they like to talk about a cycle of violence, again, as if the firefighter is the same as the arsonist, that the firefighters are purposely going out after arsonists for no particular reason. And so Israel really can't win in this kind of sporting event where the media, you'll see now in the war with Gaza, will begin to have a scoreboard of how many Palestinians have died versus how many Israelis have died. And so Israel must be acting disproportionately if there are more Palestinians dead than Israelis, which basically means that the media would prefer that Israel let more of its civilians be killed just so it would even out the score. But perhaps to move to a particular point within the general conflict in Gaza, and that is the idea that the Palestinians are unable to dislodge Hamas from Gaza. They're living in tents, in ruins. They don't have real freedom or rights. Wouldn't you agree that they are the real tragedy of this story? Well, I have some sympathy for many of those Gazans who certainly would prefer to live normal lives of feeding their families, going to work, and not having to worry about their safety. Unfortunately, they voted for Hamas to be their leaders. It wasn't just imposed on them. There was an election in 2006, and Hamas won that election. The people there certainly are under a lot of dictatorial pressures 
but you know there are uprisings in other places when they are being treated the way Hamas civilians are treated. There is no reason why civilians there should be tolerating terrorism. Why aren't they out protesting? Why weren't they out condemning Hamas after the atrocities on uh, October 7th? Why do they allow Hamas to store weapons in their schools and their mosques? Why do they allow Hamas to set up rocket launchers next to their houses or in their houses? There is, right. again, you know, a certain limit to what they may be able to do, but they're not entirely uh, innocent in allowing all of these things to happen. Just a final point on the proportionality elements, just picking up on what you said before. Obviously, we've seen now history that superpowers have reacted improportionately. I mean, we can look at the Hiroshima bombing and you can look at the German bombings that were done by Great Britain. Having said that, is there a certain cost that one cannot pay and a price too high to get rid of a terror group? In other words, you know, carpet bombing, obviously, two million people is never going to happen. I think everyone would agree that's a disproportionate response. However, trying to eradicate the entire Hamas without there being a huge cost, just to refine the point a bit more, is there a certain price that one never pays or that is always going to be considered disproportionate? Or does a military objective just go beyond all boundaries? Well, there are different standards for superpowers and countries like Israel. As you mentioned with the examples from World War II, coincidentally, I'm just, as we started this discussion, I was writing an article on just that subject and going through a whole litany of how the United States behaved, you know, Dresden, Nagasaki, carpet bombing in Korea and Cambodia, the killing of hundreds of thousands in Iraq. You know, you can go through the whole history of how the United States has fought its wars, never, in my view, intentionally trying to kill uh, civilians, but nevertheless, it's happening. Israel can't get away with that because the entire world comes down on its shoulders and it doesn't want to. Israel is doing something that's also unprecedented in war. Israel warns civilians to get out of the way. What other country in the world does that? You know, Russia's indiscriminately bombing Ukraine and the world is somewhat outraged, but not really stopping it. The Israelis basically are telling the terrorists, we're coming, go hide, get out of the way. The United States, Britain, none of the allied nations would do anything like that. So Israel does have a high standard of trying to do its best to avoid civilian casualties. But I think you're right, there is a limit. So Israel is judged differently to other powers, which I believe you have said explicitly. So can you just tell us the reason for that? Is that because it's a smaller country or is that just age old anti-Semitism and bias? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Again, Israel is not a superpower. When you're a superpower, who's going to oppose you? And even if they criticize you, the United States doesn't care if somebody criticizes us because we had a drone strike that killed 70 people at a wedding. And Americans, for the most part, understand that these are uh, the cost of war and there's sometimes mistakes made. You know, Russia isn't going to pay a price, or at least they haven't up until now, for its indiscriminate attacks on Ukraine. 
There's also an element of anti-Semitism, the fact that there are people in the world who don't like Jews who are strong or who fight back. And one of the most disturbing things about this whole conflict is to see rallies around the world, and especially on American campuses, and I suspect there are some in England as well, rallying on behalf of Hamas, celebrating the atrocities they committed on October 7th. I mean, this was before there were any uh, large numbers of Palestinian casualties. And here it was particularly appalling to see that the universities in this country weren't prepared to come out with unequivocal condemnation of Hamas or the students who were supporting it. So I think that's another element. There's an issue in the media, in particular, of preferring to root for the underdog. Israel at one point was seen as the underdog up until 67, when it won the war in six days. Now it's seen as the uh, Goliath, and it's treated as though it is never victimized. It can only be the victimizer. And that, I think, shapes a lot of the coverage you see in the media. Yeah. Okay. So finally, do you believe in a two-state solution? And has anything that has transpired over the last few weeks changed that opinion? A two-state solution is a fantasy. <laughs> it may have been a possibility 30, 50, 100 years ago. But the fact is the Palestinians have no interest in a two-state solution. They've said it over and over again. They've had multiple opportunities for independence in the Peel partition in 37 and the UN partition in 47. They had the chance from 1949 to 1967. Everyone forgets this period. Jordan occupied the West Bank. Egypt occupied uh, Gaza. And for 19 years, you never heard a single word about a two-state solution or Palestinian independence. They were offered uh, the autonomy by Menachem Begin, which likely would have led to a state. They were offered a state again in 2000 at the Camp David summit. You look at the polls. Palestinians say in the polls they don't want a two-state solution. You look at the Islamists, like Hamas, but not just Hamas. They say they don't accept the idea of a Jewish state anywhere on the planet. So that's one aspect. And then there's a practical one, which is today there are 500,000 Jews living in Judea Samaria or West Bank. And in order to get a two-state solution, as conceived by just about everybody, if you look at the Clinton plan, for example, you would have to withdraw or evacuate something like 100,000 Jews from the West Bank. And there's no conceivable Israeli leader who would agree to evacuating, forcing 100,000 Jews out of their homes. So from a practical standpoint, it's simply irrelevant today. And so when people talk about it, they're really just living in a fantasy world. Dr. Bard, thank you very, very much for making the time for us. And we really all, I think, share in the desire to hear of good news and of a level of peace that extends itself over the areas of conflict. But thank you once again for making the time for us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. In conclusion, whose land is it? From an historical perspective, it has always been a homeland to the Jews for 
three and a half thousand years. And in contrast, no other nation as a nation has been there. When, you know, when the Arabs overran the Middle East in the seventh century, it was an empire that they were building. There were no borders. Paris, Palestine or any of these labels didn't exist as countries. Palestine is a, a Roman invention. For the Jews, it was always their country. And for religious Jews, three times a day, every day for 2,000 years, it's been on our lips. The most open-minded, charitable, liberal interpretation of these claims any time in the last 1,000 years would be that it belonged to no nation. But for sure, there is no such thing as historical Palestinian claims or nationhood in that country. And then it was offered for partition, a perfect two-state resolution, 36, 47, accepted by the Jews, utterly rejected by the Arabs. Sovereign states could have existed 90 years ago. The Arabs unilaterally, unanimously rejected it. These are facts. And as Israel came into existence, within 24 hours, six Arab countries unprovoked attacked Israel, hoping to wipe out the country. Once again, facts. And then another three wars were fought. And all Arab countries made it clear in public policy statements that Israel would never be recognized or made peace with unilaterally. And then the landscape changes, uh, marked by Egypt in 1978. So there's peace, time shaky peace with some of the countries and internal fighting started. And these Palestinians are not prepared, the PLO, not prepared to talk peace. They're prepared to talk terror, hijackings, bombings. And any Jew is a legitimate target in Rome, in Vienna, in Paris. Innocent civilians, none of them have Israeli nationality, just like October 7th, 2023, when it's innocent civilians. But because Israel will do almost anything for peace and stability, they agreed to talk and discuss self-determination with a people that had never existed, whose charter made it clear that their goal was the destruction of Israel. They gave them Gaza and self-rule in 40% of the West Bank. And what did they get? And as we mentioned, the main problem is there isn't one group that represents the Palestinians. And there is the various hardline groups that have never renounced violence, who are people dedicated to the eradication of the Jews. And therefore, you know, uh, after 7th of October, no sane politician can suggest that Hamas can be a partner or even sit at the table. So, you know, is a, is a two-state solution possible if there's someone to talk to, if they're new leaders? It's not like the IRA, because the goal of the IRA wasn't the destruction of another. It was the replacement of the government. They were prepared to live with the people. And no one in Israel wants war. You know, there might be many on the right wing that don't want to give up territory, but no one, no one wants to lead their children into bomb shelters or build apartment blocks with mandatory steel rooms. And as the UK-Israeli ambassador Tsipiot put it, this is a moment in a national life where Israel needs to protect their children and is actually a fight being undertaken on behalf of the Western world, like ISIS. And that makes the, the moral cowardice and blindness of these Ivy League universities so blatant. The Columbia's and Yale and Harvard's of this world you can't ascribe this to the Netanyahu government because nobody on the left or the right in Israel is reacting differently. So, you know, citizens of America, sending your children to these so-called hallows academies of learning is sending them to be taught by people blinded, consumed by hatred, bias and narrow minded bigotry. And I'll finish this very long podcast with one thing. 
This violence started just as we were reading the beginning of the Torah again, Bereshis, on Shemini Atzeres. Bereshis makes it very clear that God created good and evil. There are shades of it, but at its core there exist manifest- manifestations of evil that are just that. They cannot be treated as relatively bad. And that mistake, assuming that there are always two sides to an issue, when actually one side is wantonly and brutally murdering civilians, is what makes the West and the media guilty of perpetuating the conflict and bloodshed in the Middle East. They are a partner in this, and it makes Israel's position very difficult, as Mitchell Bard has pointed out. Just to say, we will be posting on the website websites and books as recommendations because obviously you know if people want to get more into the issue there are more questions and answers to all of these questions but this i hope provides a background to the narrative and to an understanding of what decisions were taken and what facts were real and which are created and continuously quoted even though they are fiction Wow, Rabbi Hirsch, thank you so much. It's very, very clear how much research and effort that particularly podcast took, which we appreciate. I tried not to interrupt you at all and let it flow (laughs) as the narrative was uh, so important. And I assumed you would probably address every point that I would raise, which you did. And yeah, it's arguably probably the most important series that we've done to date, as it's certainly the most relevant and hopefully should have cleared up all the misinformation out there as well as, of course, the appropriate Jewish way to react to it in the episode one. So we'll be seeing you next week for the final in this series, which will be about Mysterious Nefesh. Which is also of a general perspective, Mysterious Nefesh in history throughout the ages. Um, I mean, I will point out that even though we have tried to do justice to this, there are still questions and which they need to find the answers to. As I say, we'll put the appropriate sources for this. You know, how can Israel build a wall? And all of these questions, they're all addressed. They all have answers. And that can all be seen on the website, which is jle.org.uk forward slash podcast. You can still send questions and uh, reviews or feedback to podcast at jle.org.uk. Most importantly, please subscribe so that you don't miss the third episode or any others going forward. And feel free to share it with family, friends, colleagues, or anyone you meet that uh, I'm sure everyone I know or do you know can gain from this in some way. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch.